We all want to do work that we love. And as leaders, entrepreneurs, and employees, wouldn't it be great to create workplaces where work feels like play? Where people are tuned in to the changes going on in the world around them. Where they're constantly learning, spotting new opportunities, and taking action to go after them. I'm Amanda Satilli, and this is the Fearless Growth Podcast, where my guests and I will explore the mindsets and choices that lead you and your organization to outstanding performance. Today, my guest is Roberta Matchison. She's a leadership and talent expert, author of six books, including the September 2021 release, Can We Talk? Seven Principles for Managing Difficult Conversations at Work. Welcome, Roberta. Thank you. I'm glad to be here, Amanda. First, let just to let make sure that I understand what we're talking about, what are the most typical types of difficult conversations that you see coming up that especially the ones that people are most inept at, are most afraid to embark upon? Well, that would most definitely be conversations relating to people's performance at work, whether that's, you know, somebody is not meeting expectations, or perhaps you've gotten to the point where you realize that, you know, they're not going to be with you long-term, and then how do you transition them out of the organization? So I think those are the toughest from a manager perspective. However, from an employee's perspective, it might be a conversation where they have to tell their boss that the way they're being managed doesn't work for them, or perhaps they feel strongly that you know they deserve a raise or a promotion. I think those are tough conversations for many people. Right. And so in your book, you lay out a framework with seven steps for tackling this. Can you tell us a little bit about what those are and especially, you know, delve a little bit deeper into the one or two that you think is most misunderstood or most needs to be uh, people need to understand? Sure. Um, There are actually seven principles. And the one that I would start with is the principle on clarity And that's really getting very crystal clear on what you hope to achieve as a result of having this conversation with someone so that when you map out the conversation, you know when you've reached your objective and you don't keep going on and on and on, right? So I think that is really, really good to get a handle on. And then another one of my favorite uh, principles is curiosity, because I have found in my experience as an executive coach and as an advisor to leaders in Fortune 500 companies, that most of us don't do a very good job of listening and we don't do a great job of asking questions. And so what winds up happening is, you know, we just keep going on, but we don't, we don't get down into the nitty gritty like, well, you know, why do you feel that way? Or how did you reach that conclusion? Or, you know, can you walk me through how you got these results? And so we're not curious enough, right? We just want to say what we need to say and get the heck out of the room. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting because I would think that if you're, if you're certain that you want to let someone go, for instance, you may be hesitant to be curious because it's a done deal or whatever. But if you're trying to just improve their performance, being curious would be essential because you need to know why they're not performing the way that that you need them to and work together to to address the reasons, I suppose. Well, yes, and I agree. Um, But I also, you know, if I need to let somebody go 
and I have followed these seven principles and I've had these conversations along the way, at some point, great leaders, you know, they want to know what could I have done differently Mm -hmm. so that we might have had a different ending here, right? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times it's not the employee's fault solely. There, There are contributing factors. And so I'm curious. So I would ask that question, you know, in retrospect, is there anything we could have done differently that you think might have resulted in a different ending? And I might hear about things like, well, yeah, you could have actually trained me or you could have onboarded me or you could have made yourself more available, you know, and if I'm a magnetic leader, somebody that really wants to improve and attract and retain talent, I would want to know that. Do you ever find that, uh, well, I mean, I know bosses go in intending to let someone go and then they change their mind because they get afraid to get deliver bad news, I guess. But do you <laughs> yes. find that you ever enter the conversation, you've delivered the bad news, they're going to leave. Then you say, well, what could I have done differently? And you realize that it is, you know, a large part your fault and you reverse your decision. Well, listen, I mean, there's nothing wrong with admitting like, wow, I had no idea. Maybe we can resolve this and rectify this situation because, you know, as you know, like, finding talent right now is next to impossible for most companies. And so if it's truly something that you might have, you know, omitted along the way and you, and you think about it and you reflect on it and you say, you know, I think we can maybe rectify this situation. Let's give it another go. Are you game? I think that's, that shows courage, right? Which Mm -hmm. is another one of the principles. Um, But if it's pretty clear that, you know, okay, I have the information. I still want to proceed. What I have my clients do is I want to make sure they understand that this is not like a reality TV show, that the person who's about to leave isn't going to go on to have their own reality TV show. (laughs) You know, so I want to make sure that if it's possible, you know, give the person a choice, you know, would you like to tender your resignation? Or would you prefer that I, you know, have a termination pack package ready for you by the end of the day? Like, you know, because in the end, it's not about winning, right? It's about transitioning that person out in a way that's respectful and in a way that will allow that person to quickly bounce back and for mm-hmm. you to do the same. Mm-hmm. So if that is the choice, resign or get a package are you saying you can have some money, but you'll be designated as being let go or you well, don't get the money and you resign? No, it's not. Maybe I mis misspoken that it's not like necessarily a package, but it's like, you know, listen, we, we're at a crossroad here and there are two ways we can go. Mm-hmm. Um, if you'd like, I'll take your resignation right now. I'll accept it. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the record will show that you resigned and you can go home and tell your family that, or we're going to need to, you know, terminate your employment here, which will also reflect on, you know, your, in your personnel file, which way do you want to go? What do you see people choosing? Oh, more often than not, I see them choose the resignation Yeah, because sure. they want to leave with a clean record 
I mean, nobody wants to go home and tell their partner they were just fired. No, they don't want to tell their friends that they want to boast about, you know, well, I just walked out of there and said, well, here's my resignation, you know? Right, right. Um, and, and that's okay. Because again, it's not about the scorecard where, okay, I just won, I just fired them, I've got another one under my belt. It's about how to get through a tough conversation in a way where everyone comes out a winner. Right. So um, in one of your books, you talk, I think it's in Talent Magnetism, you talk about ending on a good note. And is that is that what it is? Or is there even a better note you can end on? <laughs> well, I think it's a pretty darn good note. <laughs> yeah, if you can get out. You know, and I actually wound up doing that. I had, I was on the receiving end of a conversation like that. And I managed to talk my way into uh, staying on an additional few months while they found somebody to replace me. And I'm, I wound up, you know, keeping my health insurance and, and my income. And it was really a win-win. And as a result, I realized, and, and I talk about this in the book, like if you're on the receiving end of this kind of a conversation, you have some power and don't be so quick to give it away. And, he, and here's what you might suggest. So the book contains conversations for not just leaders who have to have these difficult conversations, but also um, advice that I give my clients who I coach on how to, you know, react and respond if they're on the receiving end. What power do you have and how would you respectfully exercise that power? Well, if I'm a software engineer, I got a lot of power. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because these people are like, oh my God, there's like millions of software job openings right now and no one to fill them. So if I were in that situation, I would see if I could negotiate, you know, well, what if I just stayed on and, you know, as a freelancer, or perhaps if I, you know, just continued while I looked for another opportunity in this way, you're not stuck with no one to finish this project. Well, also, I think the source of your power is you will go out and say good things about the company if they treat you well. Absolutely. And you'll tell everyone, you know what, it really wasn't a good fit, but it is a great company. Right. What do you think, Roberta, leads to people being happy at work or at least being satisfied with their work where they're really feeling like they're doing what they're good at People appreciate them. They're learning. How do we get to that state? Or maybe you can redefine what you think drives satisfaction. I think what drives satisfaction is people feeling like they have control over their work. And that may be as simple as control over their hours or control over their location, whether they're working at home or in the office or a hybrid situation, whether they have control to take on, you know, new and exciting projects And, you know, and that always goes back to the leader. We see some leaders are, you know, they give their people more control than others. And that does reflect when we look at the employee turnover numbers as well. You know, people don't work for companies. They work for people. What do you think if you were the CEO of a company? So you have, you know, seven SVPs and 40 VPs and 250 managers and you know you've got all these people working for you what can you do to change the culture of the whole company so that everyone is granting employees control where they can grant control 
and where everyone gets good at shifting employees towards work that they do really well and, and really are enjoying? Well, it has to start with you. And so you can't tell your managers and your VPs that you want people to have more control over their work when you yourself are controlling everything, right? Mm -hmm. So it has to start with you. And you can't say to people, you know, I want to give you the ability to have more flexibility in your work schedule, yet here you are the CEO, you never leave the office, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or maybe you have a baby and you don't take maternity leave or paternity leave because you know, you have too much work to do. So you have to start there. And then you have to take that down to the next level. And I always tell my clients, like, be very, very careful who you let into management, because not everyone should be a manager. And certainly not everyone should be a VP. And so if you're super selective, and you hire the right people and people who have this similar values, that you're trying to cascade throughout the organization, this will be a lot easier than if you hire people that are have a completely opposite view of the world of work. Is there a litmus test that you have for someone that's going to be a good manager? Well, yes. I mean, I like to look at their past experience and I like to um, see what other people are saying about them. And that's why I love LinkedIn so much. You can get to anyone on LinkedIn. And when you're hiring someone, it's easy to find connections that they have, and they may have formerly worked for this individual. And having conversations and asking before you make that hiring decision, you know, what did you love about working for, you know, Sue? And what did you think gotten her way? Right. And so, I mean, that'll just give you more data than just making the mistake um, that a client of mine recently made. You know, she was such she was in such a hurry to hire someone. And it was a very critical hire that she kind of skipped over the reference piece. And then five weeks later had to terminate um, a senior VP. Wow. How did she figure it out in just five weeks? Well, she was very fortunate because she had an advisor on the board who she was able to kind of talk with about that. And then she and I talked about that. And, um, you know, the advice that her advisor on the board gave her and the advice I gave her was the same, like cut the cord, move on. Mm -hmm. But if she didn't have access to that, she probably still would have had that guy doing the job thinking, oh, I, I can fix this, right? When she realized that, no, she couldn't fix it. Do you see great variability between companies in terms of how efficiently and effectively they make the process of exiting an employee who is not a good fit? Like, you know, some companies seem to let people linger forever, even if they're not a good fit and others. And, and part of it is the managers and training and stuff like that. But is part of it the process that they use? Like, what hoops a manager needs to jump through before they can let someone go? Yeah, I think some of it is that. I mean, I say to my clients, you know, I'd like to see you do an amnesty day, okay? (laughs) And that is the day where you open the door and you say to your managers, listen, if you've got anyone on your team that you need to exit, I want you to come to me and tell me who they are. And, I'm, you know, I may ask a few questions, but I'm not going to place any blame here. 
And that'll be the day that the decision will be made. Okay, these people are going to be transitioned out. Um, what winds up happening is those leaders just feel like, well, you know, I've let it go this long and that doesn't reflect well on me. And so this amnesty day idea kind of just gives everybody free reign to say, okay, maybe I made a mistake. I'm not going to get punished. I need to make a decision and I need to move them out. And then what about the process for moving them out? Uh, You know, how, how does the performance improvement plan factor into that? And how many chances do you give them to improve and all of that? Well, I think every company's different. So for example, you know, this one company that I was just telling you about this, um, this CEO, this woman that I work with, she, they don't, you know, they don't have a process in place. They just go person by person and they can do that because they only have 30 employees now. But by the end of the year, they're adding 40 people. And so at that point, we'll have to put in some kind of process to make sure that people are being treated equitably. But what I love about this idea of giving people a choice, I tell when I train leaders on how to have these difficult conversations, I'm always like, listen, I I want you to say that if this doesn't improve, this could lead, you know, you could, you know, we're going to do this next which could lead to termination. And then I say, you know, do you want, is it, you know, do you want us to go to the next step if necessary? Or are you interested in just, you know, moving on right now? Do you give the employee an easy exit early? Yes. Because again, I am not of the mindset that this is this game that I have to win. Like I want this person to have a great experience and I want them to feel like they're, They've been respected and they've been given ample opportunity. And that, you know, my guess is for most of these people, they know they're not performing well when you tell them and they're not happy either. Right. So it's sort of like, why stay in a marriage for 30 years and you have, you know, no kids or whatever, and you're both miserable, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like end it after year one, if it's not working out, right? (laughs) That's really insightful, Roberta, because I think that that period of trying to improve, trying to improve as an employee is unpleasant. And so if they just think, oh, I could just resign now, move on, maybe the boss at the next place I work will be better, or maybe the work will fit me better, or maybe, you know, I can find something I enjoy more. And don't, I'm not going to put myself through this of trying to please this person. Exactly. Good advice. Thank you. You know, I hear these statistics that only I don't know whether to believe them or not, but only 30% of employees are engaged at work and things like that. What do you think the reality is there and how does it differ by type of employee or type of industry or, you know, workplace culture? Well, I think it varies greatly by workplace culture, right? Because there are some organizations that really are great to work in. And then there are others where, you know, everyone knows, man, you go there and like, what are you doing? Like maybe you're selling your soul, right? Maybe they pay really, really well, but everybody knows like there's no such thing as a free paycheck, right? They want your heart and soul. And if you're willing to give that up right now, that's, you know, that's what you're going to get. So um, I do believe those numbers are accurate. What I'm astonished about is the amount of money companies will spend like doing these employee engagement surveys. 
And then the only people, you know, that the only people making money on this, to be honest with you, are the companies selling these surveys, but then they don't do anything with the information. And that is worse than doing nothing at all. Mm -hmm. Like don't even, I tell my clients, if you're not going to change anything, don't even bother. Don't even do these surveys. Right. So of the cultures that are particularly bad at this, what are the three worst things they do that cause this lack of engagement and unhappiness at work? They allow people to remain in leadership roles who should not be in those jobs. Um, Their policies are not flexible. They haven't changed. I mean, everything in life has changed since COVID, yet they haven't changed how they're operating, right? And they're not adjusting their compensation. Uh, Here's a prime example my son just got an offer. He's graduating college in June. He's a computer science major. And he got an offer for a um, software engineer position from his co-op employer. And last year, those same students who came out of the program who were co-op students, um, his offer was 33% higher this year than the offer they made last year. And companies are operating under this false sense that, you know, oh, okay, so let's just say last year we paid these computer programmers 100000 This year, if we offer them 105, this that's a good bump, right? 5%. But these people are getting offers that are 25, 30% higher. Yet these companies are still, you know, with their heads in the sand saying, oh, well, we can't compete but they haven't gone out to the market to see what's going on. And so I have one client that actually does, um, you know, looks at their compensation structure now quarterly. And in the past that was typically done annually. Wow. Yeah. It's pretty remarkable. And that's very frequent. (laughs) Yes, it is, but it's what's necessary right now. That's how fast those ranges are moving. And if you want to be able to compete There's so much money in the venture capital world right now being given out to startups that these startups can now compete with the Fortune 500 companies for talent because they have the money. But if you're in that middle place where you're not a startup, right, and you're not a Fortune 500 company and you're still working in this old model, you'll, you'll find that your people will be leaving rapidly and you won't be able to replace them. Well, it's interesting because from the CEO's perspective, they're thinking, okay, so if I increase everybody's pay 33% this year to so that they don't get, you know, the new hires don't leap ahead of them, then what do I do next year? And then how does that affect my cost structure? And then how does that affect my profitability? And then do I raise prices? And if I raise prices, will I lose market share? And there's just this cascade of cause and effect that's pretty scary from the CEO's perspective. Well, I would ask the question, what if I do nothing? Well, true. Yeah, the the alternative could be worse. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I look at, I mean, you know, it, it. I think today they announced like inflation is the highest it's been in over 30 years. You, everything that I have purchased, everything, the price has gone up, everything. And so it is no longer shocking if you raise your prices, you know, whatever percentage you deem is necessary. No one's going to think twice because they're like, well, yeah, it costs more money to run the building now. If you're in the office, it costs more money to buy food. It costs more money for everything. 
And so this is the time if you're going to, if you're increasing what you're charging your customers, I can guarantee you that your competitors are doing the same. So, yeah. So, um, well, you, you live in Boston where there's a lot of high tech firms. There's a lot of venture capital money. Um, so maybe, you know, that whole ecosystem is rising together or needs to rise together. But I do think that there's companies that are in more basic industry in other areas of the country that would be that it would be difficult for them to play that pay raise game potentially. Well, in those markets, they may not need to go up 35 percent, you know, 8 percent might be a big move. So not everybody. And we're talking about, you know, the example I gave you is for somebody looking for a software engineer. Mm-hmm. Even for other positions, we're seeing that the salaries that are being paid this year for uh, you know 2022 grads, the offers that are coming out are pretty significant. Um, I had I joked with my husband because uh, my son's sign-on bonus was more money than what I made when I came out of college for a whole year. But that's reality. Like that's what's happening now. So you got to you got to know what the reality is. Whether you choose to do anything is up to you, but you have to be aware. You cannot keep your head in the sand and say, well, we're just going to keep doing what we've been doing and hope and pray because Mm -hmm. I'll tell you, hope is not a strategy. What's the best source for if a company is um, not big enough to commission their own competitive pay study or, you know, to get Mercer or somebody to come in and do that? What's the best source for competitive pay information? Well, I always look at like salary.com. Um, I tell my clients to, you know, call a headhunter, right? And just say, you know, hey, I'm looking to fill a job for a such and such role. Interview the headhunter and just say, what should I be anticipating as far as what are you seeing as far as salaries are going for that particular job? But I would also say that, yes, there are the Mercers out there and, and the big, you know, compensation consulting firms, but there are also, you know, individual consultants, and I'm not one of them, mm-hmm. <laughs> who who do compensation. So you don't have to have, you know, a five-star, you know, big firm doing it for you. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also um, associations that if you belong to an association like the American Manufacturing Association, many times they will provide salary studies to their members. So I would, you know, start there. Yeah. Good. Good. One last question. Uh, Do you have any advice for how companies can get better at matching people to work that they're going to be really good at and most energized and fulfilled by? Absolutely. Um, One of the key areas that I help my clients with is something that I call selecting for success. And it's really knowing how to interview people and understanding the responses they're giving you, right? And so um, recently I did a program for a major company and, you know, an experienced leader came to me and she said, oh my gosh, I've been like interviewing for 25 years and now I finally know why I'm asking these questions, right? And so when you understand like, well, why are you asking these questions? What are you seeking? How do you interpret the information you're getting? You're going to make a much, you're going to do a much better job of matching 
the right candidate and seeing and determining if that person is really the right fit for your company. Mm -hmm. And what about when they're already in the company? They may have even worked there 10 or 15 years. Do you see any best practices in terms of just validating or speaking with employees about what they what their dream job is, how they could migrate to that dream job, how they can make their current job into their dream job, things like that. Yeah, this comes really back to where we started with having a conversation. And, you know, my conversations with with employees often are, you know, what were your hopes and dreams when you took this job? And, are you know, are you moving towards those dreams? And if not, what can I do to help you get there? Have you seen any best practices in terms of companies allowing fluid movement between business units or divisions? What I see often is managers hoard employees. And, oh, yeah. you know, there's an extreme uh, hesitancy to even provide visibility sometimes into who's good in your department because you really don't want to lose them. And so employees kind of get stuck in a lane when they'd really like to change lanes within their own company. Have you seen any best practices in terms of improving the fluidity across functions, divisions, business units, et cetera? Yes. Um, my clients that do really well in this area, as far as getting, you know, permitting people to move around and encouraging them, they become known as talent magnets, right? And everybody wants to go work for them in the organization because they know if they work for Bob or Jane or Sue, they're going to get, they're going to see movement. They're going to get promoted. They're going to get to try new things. And so they get this stellar reputation, which also enhances, you know, their brand, their personal brand in the organization. And they get noticed as opposed to the person that's hoarding talent. And, right. you know, look, people, you know, you can try to hold on to them for as long as you can, but if you don't give them an opportunity inside your organization, they're going to find an opportunity outside especially now. Definitely. Definitely. Roberta, it has been so fun talking with you and I just have learned so much. I really appreciate you coming on today. Um, so thanks so much for coming. Well, thank you for having me and um, good luck and keep talking. Thank you for listening to Fearless Growth. You can find out more about the show at satilly.com slash podcast, and you can listen on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like what you've heard, please take a moment to write a review and give us a star rating. Reviews matter so much in helping others find us. Thanks for your support. 